0: In Greenville, Mississippi, if you want to drive to the liquor store and pick up some liquor, that is perfectly legal and fine, even though you're interacting with people and somehow the coronavirus could get you. But if you want to drive to a church service, stay in your car and fellowship with other people who are sitting in their cars protected from any sort of virus going through the the doors and the windows of the automobiles and listen to your preacher on the radio perfectly safe that's against the law and you're going to be slapped with a $500 fine
1: welcome to this week in common sense starring paul jacob This is for the second full week of April 2020, and what a doozy of a week it has been. Yes, we're talking about the coronavirus panic, the shutdown of the whole world's economy, well, most of the world's economy, or half the world's economy, something like that. And what are the consequences of that going to be? Meanwhile, there's a little panic over at thisiscommonsense.com, as on Thursday, the site went glitchy weird. So on Thursday and Friday, we put the new commentary up on Facebook, the Common Sense with Paul Jacob Facebook page. And we established a new site at thisiscommonsense.org. I hope that all makes sense. We're not done. There's a transition involved. Things are happening. But that's what's happening in the world all the time anyway. There's a transition involved and things are happening. Well, Paul, what do you want to talk about that's not about thisiscommonsense.com.org. Whatever.
0: This is the first week that I believe every single script Every episode, every daily commentary deals with, in one way or another, the pandemic, the coronavirus, COVID-19, and of course, probably more than that, the reaction and the, uh, the, the impetus for this virus and pandemic, because of course, we deal a good bit with China And uh, some people have called this the China virus. Some people have called it the Wuhan virus. Some people have said that that's racist. I like to call it the CCP virus, because I think one of the reasons this pandemic is before us is because the Chinese Communist Party is a totalitarian force that has squelched the normal, decent uh, response that people in China would have had and did have, in fact, because the people who first uh, uh, came across this spoke out about it and were silenced and arrested, in, in effect. And of course, now uh, there's been some search, as we talked about a little bit last week, uh, Tim. Uh, there's been some uh, efforts to find, you know, patient zero, and it appears that patient zero has been disappeared. Our first script was Tyranny Resurrected. And um, I use the term resurrected because, of course, last Sunday was Easter Sunday. And a lot of Americans who would have liked to have gone to their church to worship and to celebrate uh, the resurrection were not able to. And that was very, very disappointing. But they did the best they could. And in Greenville, Mississippi, uh, not only did they do the best they could, I think they handled things perfectly. They got together because part of the problem with this pandemic is and social distancing, which has been the mitigation strategy, is that we like each other. We love each other. We're social creatures. We want to be together. Well, the church in Greenville, Mississippi actually did a pretty good job. Of social distancing. Of course, a lot of preachers have been criticized, and I think rightly so. Uh, you know, each each his own, uh, and, and we're free human beings, so people can get together and take risks, I guess, if they want. But I think the criticism for some of the preachers who've had big congregations get together in close quarters has been justified. That was not the case in Greenville, Mississippi where this congregation got together uh, in their automobiles so that they were protected from each other by, you know, two sets of doors and windows and so on, um, no risk of spreading the virus, and listened to their preacher preach his sermon on the radio in their cars. So this is social distancing at its best, and yet, what was the reaction of the Greenville Police Department at the behest of their mayor? This was not the police running off on their own and uh, and you know and doing this. This was uh, the mayor deciding that no, you can't get together uh, and and worship in the same parking lot, in your car. You can drive to the liquor store and you can get out and you can exchange money and and get your liquor, uh, which I don't have any problem with either. Uh, But you can't in Greenville, Mississippi, get together and in a very safe way, practice your religion. And this is outrageous. I don't know anyone outside of this mayor who thinks this makes any sense whatsoever and of course there were by the media reports there were eight police who showed up to give these $500 tickets now I think that when it comes time to pay these tickets these churchgoers are going to be smart enough not to pay them and to take them to court. And when the judge throws them out, if the police aren't smart enough to just nalpros them, they are likely also to hire an attorney and to sue the city of Greenville and to rake in a large sum of cash because this is so clearly a violation of their First Amendment rights. And, you know, there are times where there were violations of First Amendment rights, and you understand why the government wanted to, you know, you can understand if people were all getting together to protest, and they were standing very close together, as we'll get to later uh, when we talk about the protests in Michigan and, and other protests that I, that I hear are, are uh, you know, popping up around the country. Well, they have a First Amendment right to do that. And the First Amendment is essential. All the amendments, the Constitution, our way of life is essential, and our rights are essential. And so you could do a lot of things that would be dangerous that I think you have every right to do. And I think in the end, the courts should and probably will say, yes, indeed, you can't stop people from exercising their First Amendment rights. But what happened in Greenville, Mississippi is so terrible because not only is it a clear exercise of fundamental First Amendment rights, but it is a clear abuse of those rights without any slim, tiny iota of justification. We live in a country where you have people in power who don't have any clue about not only their limits, because we do have rights, but of just basic common sense. I mean, how does anyone get it in their head that they're going to go slap $500 fines on people who are doing nothing but sitting in their automobile safely worshiping their God? Let's hope that at the next election, if this mayor is stupid enough to run for office, he gets one vote at most, his own. So on, on Tuesday, Tim, we went to the other side of the world, 12 hours ahead of us, and talked about friends and enemies. Those two countries are China and Taiwan. They couldn't be more different, and, and I think so often we, you know we, we know all about China. People don't know as much about Taiwan. And there's a view, I think, that Taiwan is simply uh, part of China that, you know, that that uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists ran to when they lost in mainland China in the war against Mao Zedong and the the communists. And of course, that's true. They did run there. But Taiwan's been around for a long time, since the beginning of the earth. (laughs) There's been this island there and people have lived on it. And of course... You know, the the Dutch and the Portuguese came over and uh, used to be known as Formosa. That's a a Portuguese word, as I understand it, which means, I think, beautiful island or beautiful green island. Um, And it is a beautiful green island. I've been there. It just is gorgeous. I haven't gotten to hike in the mountains. Taiwan has more mountains over, I think, 3,000 meters or 3,000 feet, which is a sizable mountain per capita than any place, any country on earth. Uh, and I love to hike. I love mountains. also has uh, all kinds of uh, you know beaches and so on, being an island. So uh, a lot to do there. I've been there, and I, I really love the, uh, the time, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing some of the beauty of the island next time I get a chance to visit. Anyway, when Chiang Kai-shek and his forces came over, Uh, they weren't so nice. And basically, uh, Taiwan was under martial law for four decades after they came over. There was a February 28th incident where, um, you know, a, a nationalist soldier had Uh, it may have been a policeman, I think it it was a soldier, but maybe it was a policeman, who was abusing a woman and was the crowd stopped him from doing that and I think slugged him more than a couple times and all of a sudden there were uh, a lot of police brutality, uh, brutal incidents committed and the next 40 years you had uh, the country under martial law you had disappearances, you had torture, you had a fascist dictatorship, and of course, uh, you know, I grew up, my parents were very anti-communist, um, and so I, I remember hearing about Taiwan and hearing about the situation, and And of course at that point it, it was named the Republic of China, and uh, Chiang Kai-shek's idea was always that they were going to go back and capture the mainland. So. So for years, the folks in the government uh, in Taiwan wanted, said, hey, there's one China and we are it. Uh, And of course, the folks on the mainland, Mao, you know, the the folks who were being starved to death or or beaten in some gulag and and killed, uh, they said there's one China too. But historically... Uh, Just about every time, you know, when when the Japanese controlled Taiwan for about 50 years until the end of World War II, right before the Japanese came, there were people in Taiwan uh, who declared their independence as they got the opportunity. After the Japanese were leaving, they declared their independence. Uh, They were put down. And of course... You know, the fact that large um, imperialistic powers put you down does not give those large imperialistic powers, whether they be Japan or the United States or China, does not give them rights to your country. And uh, so I I think a lot of times Americans don't see, uh, one, we didn't really, weren't really told what a fascist regime Chiang Kai-shek set up. And and so that was the free China. Well, it wasn't free. Um, and, you know, our government playing geopolitical games just kind of papered over that. But the people in Taiwan fought that and overcame that. And for someone like me who cares about freedom and who cares about the people who sometimes risk their lives and suffer incredible things to, to get freedom, I have a ton of respect for what the people in Taiwan have done. They have gone from 40 years of martial law that ended in 1987 to arguably the freest, I think they are, the freest, most democratic uh, country in Asia. They're the only country in Asia, Asia for instance, that has gay marriage legalized. And interestingly enough, it happened in the same way that it happened in the United States. Big arguments about it. Certain that the legislature passed it. There was a referendum against it. It was defeated. And the courts came out and said, wait a second, we have equal rights in our Constitution and you can't take it away. The majority cannot take away the rights of the minority under their Constitution and under the US Constitution. So anyway, I I see Taiwan as a, a partner for the United States that unlike so many of our partners where we've pretended that they're a free country when they're anything but free, they are a free country. They have struggled and built a free democratic country. That and, and unlike so many of the U.S.'s partners in diff, at different times that really didn't bring much to the table in terms of willingness to defend themselves, uh, you know, go back to Vietnam. And, you know, Johnson, President Johnson, uh, good old LBJ, um, you know, basically said American boys shouldn't have to fight and, and, you know, for what Asian boys should be doing well the truth is this, the south vietnamese did not build much of an army they didn't have much going for them and you look instead to taiwan and taiwan 24 million people in taiwan about the same population as australia like a million less um is up against 1.4 billion people in china and a a huge powerful nuclear uh power And so, you know, but they are ready to defend themselves. And so I look at Taiwan and I see this country that is free, is democratic, and is committed to their own defense, is not looking for the world to pick them up as some sort of welfare uh, project. They are willing to help the world. And of course, you look at China, you see something different, and especially in this pandemic, you know Taiwan was hit really hard by the SARS uh, uh, epidemic, and and you know the U.S. was not hit hardly at all, but Taiwan and China and and uh, Asia was hit, and so they learned some lessons and they got prepared. As I suspect, we will be a heck of a lot better prepared next time something like this happens. But for that reason, they have been a huge help to the rest of the world, providing millions of uh, N95 masks to Europe and to America, uh, offering to help the WHO, the World Health Organization, even though the World Health Organization, at China's insistence, has refused to let Taiwan in, has refused to communicate with them in the way that they should be communicating, because after all... You know when when President Trump this week said, "Hey, he's cutting off any additional funding for who until we look at what's going on." Uh, a move that I applaud, and and we'll get more to that here in a minute. Um, but when when he did that, of course, the first thing we heard from from who and from China and from others was, "Oh, this is this is terrible. He's playing politics in the middle of a pandemic." Well. What is it that has stopped Taiwan from being able to get involved in international efforts to fight this pandemic? It's been all politics coming from China. And of course, uh, Dr. Tetros, who's not a medical doctor, but who is a doctor nonetheless, is also a Maoist from Ethiopia and is in his position at the behest of the CCP, the Communist Party. In China. And uh, and so he has gone out of his way and who uh, has gone out of its way to have the Chinese communist line to as late as, you know, mid January to be acting like they didn't know that this virus is being passed human by human contact, human to human even though Taiwan, because they're close to China, there's all, you know, people are traveling back and forth all the time. December 31st, Taiwan informed WHO and other countries, it, through WHO, the World Health Organization, not, not Roger Daltrey and uh, one of my favorite bands. and And so, you know, they were the first to warn that this is, a virus that is being passed human to human, and we need to take action. And yet it was weeks after that, before China owned up to that fact. China has been horrible in terms of any transparency as to where did this come from, what, you know, give the world as much information as you possibly can. Instead, they have been, it's been like pulling teeth to get any information from China. And here is this U.N. agency, and it won't shock Americans that a U.N. agency behaves in ridiculously political ways, Um, but who is actually kind of backstopping China and saying, oh, China's wonderful and, you know, nothing to see here, move along. Who has acted horribly in this? So has China. And yet here is Taiwan doing all kinds of things to help the rest of the world, even while they're discriminated and pushed out. And so I look at this and I think, who would look at China and Taiwan and not realize when you look at China, you're looking at a totalitarian government that gives no democratic uh, uh, check on their power to 1.4 billion Chinese, puts 2 million and maybe more Uyghurs in concentration camps, is known to be browbeating them, torturing them, brainwashing them, trying to get rid of their ethnic and religious foundations as as a people, has basically done the same thing in Tibet, did the same thing to Falun Gong, Uh, All of these groups, no threat to anybody, in the same way that Taiwan, you know, Taiwan hasn't ever attacked anybody. They they haven't, you know, they haven't done these things. And so you look at that and you see this terrible enemy that is has done all kinds of things, as we've talked about in recent weeks, uh, to try to control what we in the United States can say. Our National Basketball Association has to walk on eggshells, doesn't have to but they want that dollar. And so they are walking on eggshells. Our universities have all kinds of Chinese government influence. And so our universities are walking on eggshells. Same thing's happening in Australia, same thing's happening around the world. And so China is obviously an enemy to any sense of freedom and free speech and the type of world that we as Americans want. Now, if your whole goal is money, then you want 1.4 billion customers and you will sell your soul to the evil butchers of Beijing. And so I'm afraid that our politicians for the most part and I think Mr. Trump has been as as many times as he said I think stupid things, you know, to kind of play up to Xi Jinping, uh, you know, Maybe let's hope that that is his usual overpraising and overcriticizing everybody. Mr. Trump has a tendency to say that people are super terrific and they're his friend and all this kind of ridiculous, uh, ridiculousness. And then also to be very critical and, oh, they're terrible and so on. So, of course, he's overpraised Xi Jinping and and China, Um, but he has stood up to them a little bit. And I like that. And he now has stood up to the who, uh, not the rock group, but the World Trade, or the World Trade, the World Health Organization. And and so I, I look at these two countries and I realize that the American people, our hearts, our heads, our whole bodies are with Taiwan and against the totalitarianism of China. But our business leaders and air quotes there, and our political leaders, air quotes again, are probably with whoever has the most economic clout. And that's not the free democratic people in Taiwan. That's the totalitarians in China. And that's why I'm not suggesting that Americans should rattle our sabers and, boy, let's get ready to fight China and so on. The last thing we want in in, Asia, or anywhere else, is war. But my view is that wars happen when we don't stand up and state what we're for. And I think we need to, as Americans, let our politicians know and let our businesses know we have no quarter for totalitarianism, and we do support people who are free and care about the same sorts of things that we care about, Um, and that's Taiwan. And and so that's the the friends and enemies, we have to choose as individuals. We cannot let big business or big government, our own, make those choices for us. And and so that was the whole point of Tuesday's script. And then on Wednesday, things were happening pretty quickly because Wednesday's uh, title, which I enjoyed, Who's daddy? Kind of who's your daddy? And when it comes to the who, their daddy is China. Even though we American taxpayers are the biggest contributors to the World Health Organization, the World Health Organization is in the back pocket of Xi Jinping and the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's been obvious throughout this. In fact, really, the silver lining in this horrible pandemic. Has been the transparency that China would not give us, we've gotten on our own because we have seen how they behave. And I think it's woken a lot of people up uh, to what we are facing, to the fact that China is asserting itself. And that'd be wonderful if China was a free and democratic place like Taiwan. But it is not. And so we need to be very, very careful. Um, and, and you know, we, we will talk more about this. But, you know, think about things like that Joe Biden said, these are good folks. These are good folks. There are no competition. He's wrong on both counts. They're not good folks. I mean, the people of China are wonderful people, like people everywhere. But... The leaders of China are not good folks. And of course, we did we did a commentary weeks before that, when Bloomberg got into the presidential race about his comments. Bloomberg actually was telling people that, hey, you know, the the Chinese Communist Party Xi Jinping, he's got to listen to the Chinese people. What? No, he doesn't. He doesn't have to listen to them, because if they say something he doesn't like, he will put them in prison. And Bloomberg knows that. In fact, it came out this week, we, we didn't do a commentary on it, uh, you know, stay tuned, but it came out this week that Bloomberg shut down a report that their reporters in China had about all of the, the special deals and the wealth that was being amassed by Xi Jinping's buddies, cronies, And that they forced the reporter to sign a nondisclosure clause and then tried to force his wife to sign a nondisclosure clause because she knew about it being married. You know, they talk a little bit. Every every once in a while you get to talk to your spouse. It's really fun. Anyway, um, it's just outrageous. This is our media. And of course, I've complained on this podcast up teen times, and I'm not going to stop, about the fact that the Washington Post and other major American newspapers take paid inserts from China Daily, which is a Chinese government-run newspaper, government-owned. And the truth is, everything in China is government-owned. They have had billionaires who own this company, and then they decide, oh, We don't like you. You're under arrest. We just took over your company. That's how it works. They are totalitarian. So when people say, oh, no, this is a private business in China, there is no such thing. We've got to wake up. And you would think our media, our political leaders would help wake us up. No, they want us to go to sleep because there's a lot of money to be made there. And the 1.2, I think I said in the past it was 1.5 billion. I want to correct that. Hunter Biden did not get a loan for his Ukrainian company of 1.5 billion. No, 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 no. I was wrong. The loan he got, the investment he got from China was only 1.2 billion. So, Joe Biden is running for president with this huge, huge leverage, this, this relationship with China that's just ugly. And I don't think most people who watch you know, one of the major networks and who, even if they're reading the New York Times and the Washington Post or their local paper, they're not going to get this information. And so we, we've got a real problem. I think, and, and the nice thing about this pandemic, if there is anything nice, and I think this is the only thing, is that it's waking us up to the fact that we're being lied to, we're being misled, we're not getting the sort of news that we ought to get. And something that I don't know if we'll have time uh, to do a commentary, we do five a week, um, and frankly, there's more than five things happening every week. So we may not be able to get to it. But this week, finally, the Washington Post and the New York Times decided to tell their readers that there had been an allegation of sexual assault against Joe Biden. In fact, in the New York Times, they even wrote this long ridiculous, because I read it, uh, this long explanation. It was titled, why it took the New York Times 19 days to report on the allegations against Joe Biden. And it was because they weren't so sure about the woman who had made the allegations and this and that, and they had to check. But what is just obvious to anybody who's paying attention is that if this had been an allegation against Donald Trump, and there have been numerous allegations against uh, Donald Trump, But had this been an allegation against Donald Trump, it would have hit the front page, and it would have hit it that day, not 19 days later. The reason that the readers of the New York Times and the Washington Post, because the Post did the same thing, didn't report on it until they were embarrassed into reporting on it, until they realized that they were going to be in worse shape if they didn't report than if they did. They hid the news from us until they were forced by other outlets and by the internet and social media to report on it. And the folks who deserve some credit on this is The Intercept, Glenn Greenwald's uh, outfit, uh, which I think I'm going to have to send some money to. <laughs> not not much, Glenn. I'm very poor. Um, but, uh, and, and a lot of their, you know, their political bent isn't mine, but I feel like they're honest. That goes ahead. Heck of a long way in the modern world to be just a little bit honest, and so that's that's where we are. We're going to be talking more about China's media manipulation, uh, but if we don't get a chance to write something about uh, the long delay in reporting on this sexual assault allegation against Joe Biden, um, I want people who listen to the podcast to know about it. Um, it's it's just. It's just so disgustingly sad to think that we have all this media, and they seem to just want to tell us what they want us to know, and no more.
1: You know, there's a long history of China and Democratic Party. I never understood what's going on in China. I think he explained it to me a few weeks ago, and I still don't remember. I can't put it in my head. But what happened then? Well, there was
0: there was a big deal during clinton's time with chinese money coming in and the question being is this chinese person really a an american or are they you know a front person for the ccp the communists in china and there was i was at the time kind of shocked by the fact that the, you know i guess i was young and naive um and i'm still young i'm just not as naive um, but but, uh, you know, I was kind of shocked that there wasn't more coverage because, you know, this foreign country comes and and all this money coming in. And there were people who went to prison. Uh, there were people who gave money to Hillary Clinton uh, when she was running for president in 2008 uh, that were Chinese nationals. And there were some real questions and and. And obviously some, some wrongdoing there. And it wasn't necessarily wrongdoing on Hillary Clinton's part. I don't know that. I don't have the evidence to say it was. But I think there's a lot of smoke.
1: Well, it sounds an awful lot like interference in other elections is all I'm saying.
0: Well, and, and the funny <laughs> thing is that's that's just something that doesn't get covered in America. I mean, I had heard that there was Russian interference in the last election, but no coverage of it. No, <laughs> Congress didn't care about it. The media didn't care about it. No, it's it. You know, it does seem like foreign interference in our elections. And of course, the the interference uh, that that you know was the, the first attempt to uh, impeach uh, Donald Trump, and was was you know all the Russian interference there was not. The Russians giving money and helping the Trump campaign in that way. And of course, they came back and whether you call it collusion or conspiracy or whatever else, the Mueller investigation uh, did not find that there was collusion or conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russian operatives. We're still looking into you know what happened with the deep state, and whether there was an a a political effort to kind of get Trump, that was uh, run through the FBI and and other intelligence agencies. All of this is very troubling, um, but it we didn't hear nearly enough about the Chinese influence starting at least the report starting back when Bill Clinton was president, and of course you know. I think back to Tiananmen Square, which was, for me, a major event in my life, because I'm a political person, and it really woke me up to how important, even though I, I complain about our democracy, and, and we all should, because it's not giving us the kind of choices we, we would like. Remember last time it was Trump and Hillary? This time it's going to be Trump and Biden? I rest my case. So we've got some real problems. I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't complain. But having some semblance of democracy is essential if we're to keep politicians and power mad people, and I repeat myself, from taking away all of our freedoms. It is better in the United States than in China, where if you say something they don't like, You might be disappeared. You might be in a prison being tortured. You might be in a prison not being tortured. It's still, that's not, those aren't the outcomes we want. So let's applaud democracy. And I think as someone who has always been more into freedom than, hey, we get to vote, um, I gained a real respect for democracy because I recognized After Tiananmen Square, it really opened my eyes that, you know, the process matters, whether we have democratic checks, even if sometimes we're slow to use them. I mean, think about the Declaration of Independence. uh, And I think one of the most brilliant things that Jefferson and the the folks who who helped him wrote in that document was that people are apt to allow infringements on their freedom, that it takes a long time. What, what was the, I can't think of the phrase at the moment, but a long train of abuses before people tend to wake up. And, and so, you know, it's, we do allow government to get away with stuff they should not get away with. But at least we have some levers to democratic levers that we can use to try to keep government under our control. In China, when, when Taiwan held a Free election in the 1990s, it was the first free and fair democratic election in any Chinese language country, ever, ever. I, I think people have started to wake up, but boy, it's late in the game, and it's uh, I had someone on Facebook, I posted my commentary. And they made the comment that, uh, hey, China, you know, look, China has a longstanding policy that this is their territory. Taiwan is their territory. And it was like, (laughs) and and then I said, I don't care what their longstanding policy is, it's not their territory. And then the comeback was, well, they've stated that as a core national interest. And I thought, you know, Hitler stated that the Sudetenland was German territory, and that was a core national interest. I'm not interested in core national interests. I'm interested in the interests of people in being free. And so I want to do whatever I can before I leave this beautiful world to keep people who are free free and to make it to where people who aren't free can be free. And I'm not ready to say, hope oh, we gotta hand over Taiwan. I mean, I feel like that's kinda Neville Chamberlain writ large. In fact, I am so outrageously optimistic and provocateuring or whatever you say that. I'm a provocateur. I believe that the people in Hong Kong should be able to stay free too. And get this, I'm gonna go a mega step further I want to see the wonderful people of China, 1.4 billion of them, free. If, if they would have had the same level of private gun ownership in 1989, when Tiananmen Square happened, that we have in the United States of America, China would today be a wonderfully vibrant free country. And so I'm not willing to just say, hey, we're going to keep Taiwan free. We're going to keep America free. I want to see Hong Kong stay free, and I want to see China become free. So there.
1: Very good. Uh, Thursday's piece moved a little bit different direction, closer to home, and to something on everybody's mind. It should be. Um, You know, I I don't think we've heard –
0: uh, enough questions from the media about this, but Thursday's commentary was cure and consequences. And I have been somewhat supportive of the idea, look, I'm not, a, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a medical doctor, I'm not an ex- expert in these things, but from the get-go, I've understood that there are consequences to shutting down the economy. There are consequences to social distancing and to shelter in place. Um, and some of those consequences you just have to live with. But you you have to calculate, um, you know, it is possible that to save 10,000 lives over here, you cost 15,000 lives over here, and that doesn't sound like good arithmetic. And I think generally, government and individuals ought to stay out of the business of deciding who lives and who dies, but there is a cost to shutting down the economy. There is a cost um, to what what we are doing, and one of the things that I've been most troubled about is there doesn't seem to be a clear idea of, okay, how do we end this, And uh, and one, All this money that's being spent. I I saw somewhere someone had said, Hey, the government's providing the money. The grocery stores have food. Why is everybody worrying about this? As if tomorrow, if all of a sudden the grocery stores don't have food and we realize that the government's been printing this money out of thin air, oops, gee, that might be a little too late for us to do anything about it. So we. Are supposed to be the government and the grocery stores only have food because farmers grow that food and they put it on trucks and those trucks drive it to the grocery store and we're able to go there and buy it so we need to worry about the whole supply chain we need to worry about the whole kit and caboodle as they say and and so you know what we were really pointing up in Thursday's script is hey there are there are more moving parts to this and we need to be very aware of how we get out of this how we reopen the economy and of course interestingly enough we see efforts now to reopen the economy and uh and i think you're going to see tremendous pushback against that and it's it seems to be so political if Trump, who's you know the number one politician in the country at this point, if Trump says we're going to stay closed, you may see people who don't like Trump saying, well, wait a second, look at all the problems. If Trump says, hey, it's time we stay open, you're going to have people say, oh, well, then, you know, if, if the, the virus kicks back up, then it's your fault. And of course, trump may be looking at this i've had more than a few people suggest he is in political terms you know it's a it's a big deal that i think trump's signature is gonna he's not gonna personally sign him his arm will get tired but his signature is going to be on some of these checks that are sent out and of course this is classic politicians who like to take credit you know if you ever go you know you, you you drive into some State, you see, welcome to this state, and then you usually see some politician's name on there. They know about name ID, and they want it, So, uh, and they want credit when they're handing out money. So this is, uh, don't get the idea that, ooh, the evil Democrats are playing politics. Everyone in Washington is playing politics, and I came to Washington as a very, very uh, cynical person, I thought. And my cynicism has never been able to keep pace because I keep finding out that, oh, no, Paul, you need to be a lot more cynical. Uh, Everything is political. Uh, And I'll just make a quick uh, uh, promo uh, endorsement of the show Veep, which I don't get, get HBO. So I haven't seen that many episodes, but my daughter gets HBO. I go over there and. And I think we're a season plus into it now. Uh, but I told her the first time I watched it, I said, you know, this is, it's uncanny. This show is the most accurate portrayal. It's a comedy. And they're kind of taking it, you know, to the extreme. <laughs> but it, it is the most accurate portrayal of Washington I have ever seen. Because everybody on Veep, the office holders, the politicians, their cronies around them, everyone, and and include the media in it, include the National Press Corps. I'm not talking about every reporter out there in, in America. I don't know about everybody, but I'll tell you, the Washington Press Corps can be included in this. They are all thinking about politics. They're all thinking about how this helps them, how they can use this good thing or horrible thing to advance their agenda. And we have to realize it, that's what's going on.
1: You know, um, I speculated in 2016 that uh, Veep was one of the factors that led to the uh, election of Donald Trump. Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character is so reminiscent of uh, Hillary Clinton. She's plausibly Hillary Clinton. She didn't look plausibly Donald Trump, and that didn't help Hillary Clinton. I can't believe it helped Hillary Clinton because that was really, really, uh, it was a harrowingly funny show.
0: That's interesting. I I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. And so I love, uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus who, whose name is so darn hard to say. So, um, you know, but, but anyway, I love her. And so somehow I'd never thought of her cause I'm not quite as fond as of, uh, of, um, Hillary Clinton. Uh, so I've never thought of her in that way, but I think you may be onto something in the sense that she is always calculating in such an obvious way. And I think that's one of the things with, you know, uh, they all calculate and some of them do it very, you know, very effectively, um, seamlessly. Uh, Hillary Clinton. it's almost like you can see your eyes you know you know moving and and calculating. And of course Bill Clinton I think was calculating, but he's he's a master at it, uh, at least not looking that way. And it's interesting um, you know it's pretty obvious that Trump suffers from a fairly high degree of narcissism. you know everything's about him and you know so on. but it's almost refreshing in the sense that it's so out in the open. Whereas every, you know, I've had so many different people who I know who say, oh, so a congressman, so-and-so, I like them because they had this one bill and I saw them on TV and they sounded so good. And of course they did. It was a good bill. They know I, I like that legislation, but I know the person just a little bit, so I know they're full of it. I know that they they like that bill unless it hurts them at all, and then they throw it in the trash in a New York minute. Um, and and so it's it's uh, you know Washington is a sewer. When people talk about the swamp, it is a swamp, and uh, and it's and it it's bipartisan. It's why if you're looking for solutions, they come from getting the public more engaged. They come from, we've talked about things like term limits all the time, so that people aren't part of Washington forever and a day. They have to go back home. We've talked about voting from home, not just during a pandemic, but all the time, so that one, they're closer to us and further away from the lobbyists and fellow politicians
1: in Washington. Friday's piece, which uh, got put up on Facebook and is now on thisiscommonsense.org and is showing as such. So our site is actually uh, in transition, somewhat competent manner. But Viral yes. Michigan is up. And
0: uh, Viral Michigan, a little bit of a play off of pure Michigan, which is the, uh, the states, you know, they're selling themselves to the rest of the country as pure Michigan. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of uh, people who like uh, pure freedom, viral freedom in Michigan, because Michigan is one of the first places to really have people stand up and say, enough, we have rights, we're people, we're not going to be treated like so much cattle. Um, and I'll tell you, the, uh, uh, the governor, Governor Whitmer there, has been just horrible uh, just absolutely horrible, um, and and the the reason I say that is because I think she has um, I, I think she has kind of used this pandemic in a in a very obvious way to push her agenda. She's you know for instance uh, you know they've they've made it illegal. She has made it illegal to um use a motorboat on the lake you can use a canoe you can uh, you know but you can't have a motorboat um it's there's all kinds of things where it just doesn't make any sense and of course almost all of the cases of coronavirus are in detroit and surrounding areas in the southeast of the state um, and yet you've got people who are being stopped from, you know, we mentioned one one gentleman who was stopped from lawns, uh, landscaping and mowing a lawn and so on because, hey, that's a statewide mandate that you can't do it, and he's in the Upper Peninsula. So, you know, they, they have, the county he was in had no cases. Now it has one case, but it's it's the sort of thing where it was a broad, you know, Uh, brush uh, approach to it and it was draconian in saying hey you know you can go get this you can go buy alcohol or you can buy a lottery ticket but you can't go buy other things and you know when this pandemic first hit you know a lot of the clothes uh, a lot of the uh, stores were closed and uh, my wife told me about online there was this person who said well I need clothes for my kids and you know, where can I get that? And someone said, Well, your kids don't need new clothes. And she said, Well, yes, they do. You know, she said, I'm not a wealthy person. They don't have, you know, some of them, you know, their shoes are are, are worn out. They, they you know, this and that. And it's easy, I think, for sometimes for those of us who don't really need to get to the store to not realize that maybe somebody does. And and it really it it this whole argument to me oftentimes people want the government to just tell everybody what to do that doesn't work so well to go back to the very beginnings of this pandemic the government in china told people to shut up and don't talk about it it was a free society taiwan where they found out about it and yelled loudly, hey, there's a problem here. It, there is value in freedom. And, you know, if you want to live in a totalitarian society, they're there, learn the language and, you know, get you a ticket when the world opens back up. But we ought to celebrate that freedom. And one of the things that, uh, that I think I'll, I'll be writing about next week there had been several calls in the U.S. for some sort of draft that would cause more people to get into, you know, become nurses or doctors or help nurses and doctors. Because, of course, you can't just, you know, tell someone you're now a doctor. You know, there's a little schooling that goes along with that. Um, but and, and of course, in New York, they did go back to nurses and doctors who had retired and asked them to come out of retirement, ask them. That's the key word, and it seems to me that we could ask people, would you be willing to come help in the hospital? You know, you're not going to be, deciding, you're not going to be diagnosing people, uh, but maybe you can carry a bedpan. Maybe you can do some of the jobs that would make the hours that nurses, the long hours that nurses and doctors are putting in, go a little bit farther, and that's something we ought to try. But this whole idea that somehow from on high people are going to be ordered around, that doesn't work so well. And I, I, uh, the, one of the reasons I decided I'd, I'd like to write something about this is in Britain, where it is universal health care, the National Health Service has been swamped, has been really up against the wall in trying to respond to this uh, virus. And so they put out a call for volunteers to help. And in four days, 750,000 Brits volunteered. That's the sort of attitude. It seems to me that we are all, and and I'm sure there are exceptions. I know there. So it's not we are all. 99% of Americans... Are looking for how they can help. We all want to live. We all want to go back to a world in which we can go to the store, in which we can get together and hug each other, or even shake hands. Um, you know, we, we want that. So we're willing to do stuff. And yet it seems again and again, our leaders want us to do one thing, follow orders. That doesn't work so well. And so I think the folks in Michigan who got together at the at the Capitol, and some of them weren't social distancing, but the groups that put this together, I know some of the uh, anti-tax groups and and other folks, uh, kind of Tea Party type folks, those groups were telling them, please social distance, wear masks, stay in your car. In some cases, where they were just converging on the Capitol, uh, but look, we have to stand up and demand our rights. A pandemic, the worst catastrophes that can happen, we're all going to be listening for what our leaders, whether we they have air quotes or not, what they are saying, and we are gonna try to do our best. Virtually every single one of us are gonna try to do our best to help save ourselves, our families, our neighbors, our friends, but when you start ordering people around, you kill that. You are a, a um, unity buzzkill, and it, it doesn't work. And so what the governor in Michigan has done is, I think, such a transgression because it takes all the goodness that people are ready to put, you know, toward this effort, and it just smashes it down. And it, it destroys that trust. As we said last week when we were talking about the fact that they kind of lied to us about the need for masks. You can't do that because then we can't trust you. And you know what? We can't have leaders who we can't trust. So we've gotta, we've gotta whip this country into shape. And then when I say country, I'm talking about the government. And, uh, and we have to be very vigilant about what we're being told by people outside the government who are in the fourth estate, the the press, the media. Uh, So, you know, we've got a lot of work ahead of us. But look, this is a great country, great people, like people are everywhere. Let's have some faith in each other. Let's have some faith in freedom. And let's say no, like the people in Michigan have started to say, and like people around the country, I think you're going to increasingly C, saying, no to this top-down, we now live in a command economy. We now live with people who think they are our rulers instead of our representatives.
1: That's got to go. That was Paul Jacob for This Week in Common Sense for the second full week of April 2020. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can find me on the web at workman.com and at Workman on social media. This week, Paul's daily commentary switched from ThisIsCommonSense.com to ThisIsCommonSense.org. There will still be transitions in the future, but you can find all of April's commentary on ThisIsCommonSense.org. This podcast is available on SoundCloud and with podcatchers such as iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify.